Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. Homelessness has reached crisis proportions. Few issues of human dignity are as heart-wrenching as the wretched scenes in our most prosperous cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle, where one can drive down main thoroughfares and be confronted with squalid tent encampments lining streets that provide scant shelter for thousands of destitute people. The crisis is as multifaceted as it is seemingly intractable. What is the role of mental illness? What about drug addiction? Is the rising cost of housing part of the problem, and if so, what can be done about it? What protections does society owe these vulnerable people based simply on their humanity, and what responsibilities, if any, do they owe to greater society? It's all such a mess, it is tempting to throw up one's hands in despair. But that's not Jim Palmer's way. Palmer is president of the Orange County Rescue Mission, the county's most comprehensive private homeless service provider. The rescue mission started with nine people and has grown into the largest nonprofit faith-based organization, serving more than 19,800 people throughout Orange, Riverside, and San Diego counties. Under Dr. Palmer's leadership, the Orange County Rescue Mission has received national recognition for success rates of client graduates and entrepreneurial approaches to developing self-sufficiency, including the 211th Presidential Point of Light Award, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Service Award, and recognition from President George W. Bush at the Faith-Based Initiatives Conference in Washington, D.C. Dr. Palmer is an advocate for children's issues in Orange County. He fostered nine children and adopted three and was named Child Advocate of the Year in 1999. Jim, welcome to Humanize. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks for coming. You know, you have a remarkable biography. What made you decide to devote yourself to helping people who are homeless? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Newport Beach, and um, at the age of 14, I had a situation that a a young family I knew became homeless. Um, Basically, what had happened is the young boy, Michael, uh, had been hanging out at the Boys and Girls Club, and that's where I knew him from. And his mom came to the door one day and said her husband had committed suicide, that the family company had gone bankrupt it. And they didn't know what to do. And they were going to become homeless because the bank was going to take their house back. And that was really my first exposure to someone being homeless. I 
had always seen the pictures of homeless people they have in the newspaper and things like that. But to see a mother and a child homeless was really new to me. And let, let me uh, point out, I, I grew up uh, in that area of California myself. And Newport, Reach is, Newport Beach is a very well-off area. And uh, what you just mentioned is not the person one thinks of when you typically think of a homeless person or a homeless family. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really what I started to learn. Now, soon after, um, when I was 18 years old, I was invited to join a new nonprofit board called Irvine Temporary Housing in the city of Irvine. And its focus was to help homeless families in Irvine. And there weren't many, but there was a need. There was always enough brokenness that you'd have people become homeless. And by um, 19 and a half, I became its executive director. So, (laughs) you know, my entire life now has been sort of centered on working with the homeless. Well, that's being a prodigy. Uh, How how was it that (laughs) you were actually able to receive the kind of recognition at that young age uh, for this incredibly crucial mission? Well, it was sort of funny because I joined this board and uh, I looked to my left and there was the president of a local bank. And I said, wouldn't you be better being the treasurer than me? Cause you're president of a <laughs> bank. And he said, you know, sure, Jim, I'll, I'll do that. But will you take my role? And I said, well, what's your role? And he said, well, I'm vice president. I said, well, what does the vice president do? He goes, well, you know, you run the meetings if the president doesn't show up. And I said, well, how hard could that be? What I didn't realize was they also delegated to the vice president supervising the executive director. So here I was supervising whoever we could hire. And the challenge was we burnt through three staff pretty quick in that role. And each time I had to step in and sort of run things until we could hire the next person. So finally, the board said, well, why don't you just run it? And I hadn't thought about that because I was so young, but uh, that's what I ended up doing. So you've actually been engaged in this mission, if you will, this work uh, for decades. I I don't know how old you are, but you're not 20 or 21 anymore. No, 57 now. So that's basically 30 years. Not quite, but close. Yes. Yep. How that, that raises an interesting question. Um, the crisis, it seems to me, has gotten worse over those 30 years instead of better. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I'll, you know, it's somewhat um, nuts in the sense that, you know, I, I have spent all these years finding ways to uh, address homelessness, to do it better, to tend this, the tide. But when you look at California and you look at some of the very poor decisions government has made, um, you run into situations in which it's created uh, an increase in homelessness. The number of homeless people have doubled in the last five years in California. Say that again. I I want people to really focus on that because I left uh, California four or five years ago and it was bad then. But you just said what has happened in the last five years? The number of homeless has doubled in California in the last five years. In fact, I was talking to Ben Carson, who was our Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and Ben told me that if you took California out of the mix of the United States, the number of homeless would actually have gone down nationwide. But when you put California in, because the growth of homeless being so great, it, it, it 
pushes the whole nation up, unfortunately. Is that a factor of, you know, California having really good weather and it's easy in the winter to be homeless easier, not ever easy, but easier to be homeless in the winter in California than it is in New Hampshire? Or is that a product of a bad policy uh, or is it um, perhaps a combination thereof or other reasons? Well, let's see. Environment is good, absolutely. A lot of people come to Los Angeles or Hollywood to fulfill their dreams. So there is, I think, a certain portion of people that come for that. But it's really policy. Um, There are a couple big things that happened in California in the last seven years. One was AB 109, in which the governor worked to release tens of thousands of prisoners from the jail system. Really, nowhere for them to go. Now, he tried to push it down to the local level, um, but that didn't work well. And then people just ended up on the street. Oh, that that had not occurred to me that when you released all these prisoners, a lot of them are going to end up being part of the homeless population. Especially there's no programs for them. So, you know, a very high percentage, depending on who you talk to, 80-90% of those people were going to return back to jail or prison. So what the the state did is uh, an initiative was put together called Prop 47. And Prop 47 basically lowered all of these uh, penalties for infractions and laws from felonies to misdemeanors to citations. So what that means is, let's say I'm a homeless person that's addicted to alcohol or drugs. In California, I could go to any store and I could steal up to $950 worth of merchandise with no threat of being arrested or being taken to jail. Yeah, we've seen... uh you know, I the depictions in San Francisco, for example, of a kind of like mass shoplifting. And in fact, uh, stores are shutting down because they can't turn a profit because so much of their produce and pro- products are being stolen. Yeah, yeah. You've got uh, a number of pharmacies, <clears throat> Walgreens, CVS, and others that you're right have actually said, announced they're shutting down their stores in certain areas of San Francisco. Um, and it's because of exactly this. Interestingly enough, the state still doesn't really recognize it. Although, you know, I, uh, I, I was out to breakfast with the CEO of a, a very large retail company. And I sort of explained Prop 47 to him and he sort of pushed it off like, well, okay, Jim. And then we talked about some things. And then at the end, he came back, he goes, hey, I got a question for you. You're really into technology and stuff. And I said, yeah. And because, you know, the, the video cameras we have in the store, literally some people, when they steal, they'll just push the cart and wave at the camera. Man. And I said, well, that's Prop 47. That's because they're not going to get a ticket. They don't care. I remember even before I left, some stores were saying, look, don't even bother chasing people who have stolen because the district attorneys and the city attorneys aren't going to prosecute anyway. And once that gets to be known, well, then you end up with that circumstance. So so you're basically creating a, a haven for people who, who are not uh, acting in a um, community responsible way and, and are actually engaging in criminal behavior that helps. But why doesn't that lessen homelessness as opposed to increase homelessness? 
Well, because homelessness, you know, is just really a big label that's thrown on a situation. I, I tell people we don't really have a homeless situation. We have an addiction issue. We have uh, a, a broken household issue. We have abuse issues, things like that. When we screen, we do pre-screening of the homeless that we're working with, 87% of them self-identify that they have an addiction issue and or a mental health issue. Yeah, I wanted to- That's 87%. I want to get into the causes of homelessness, but before I do, I want to uh, get a little bit into the Orange County Rescue Mission, what it does for people and and uh, what it's- purposes are. I mean, we've all heard about rescue missions and so forth, but a lot of people may not know exactly what they do, perhaps other than supply food or maybe even some shelter. So tell us about the founding of the Orange County Rescue Mission. Uh, were you part of that? And also, uh, what what is the uh, purpose? What are the purposes? I'm sure there's more than one uh, of your uh, ministry. Rescue missions, there's about 400 of them in the United States. Uh, they're faith-based organizations. They're uh, typically looked at as a, a parachurch organization, someone that it comes alongside the local church and assists with homeless issues. Um, they, they're in a big spectrum. They're anywhere from a mom-and-pop operation that might just hand out food uh, to an organization like the Orange County Rescue Mission that has 12 different campuses and a myriad of all different types of services. Our particular ministry, the Orange County Rescue Mission, was uh, founded about 56 years ago by a fellow named Reverend uh, Lewis Whitehead, who had been in the military, and um, on one of the on the bases here in Orange County at the Tustin Base in El Toro, and he had a heart for helping to feed those that didn't have food. And when he left the Marines, he went ahead and um, became a pastor with a focus on providing food and then later on shelter to the homeless in Orange County. And um, I I joined about 31 years ago. They had uh, the facility that he had built there in the city of Santa Ana. And I wasn't really excited necessarily about getting involved because I had been exposed to the rescue mission a couple years earlier uh, with my church and gone in there and helped paint. And I remember how smelly it was. And I was just like, oh, gosh, Lord, please never send me here. And of course, that's where exactly I ended up. Um, and so for me, it was looking at a lot of... Um, challenges of just this uh, rotating door of the homeless coming and going and coming and going. And I learned a lot from working in sort of that very tough, intense neighborhood and uh, then really just carried out a vision of changing things from a handout mentality to a hand up mentality. That's very interesting. That raised a couple of thoughts in my head. Number one, if you're going to have that kind of an atmosphere uh, it's going to be, it seems to me, harder for people to respect themselves when, when they're getting help from a place that, as you said, is stinky or dank or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. They're, in fact, it, it might take us a year or so for them to develop enough self-esteem um, to, to sort of rise up above their challenges 
at that time. Now, of course, now with the facilities we operate, they look more like community college campuses. People come in and they're amazed at the, the beauty and the feeling of this is a sacred place. And because of that, um, their self-value shoots up almost instantaneously. I think that's a really important point. If something looks institutional or if something looks run down, that is going to affect how people feel about themselves when they are in that space. And it, But if you, you provide, a, as you said, a college campus look, that's a way of respecting the people you are helping. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we don't warehouse people. Um, most of the cities around us actually have big warehouses that they fill with bunk beds with the county and, and they're literally warehousing people and people feel um, horrible because they're sort of being treated that way uh, where everything that we create has some kind of, of privacy element to it along with having it clean and beautiful and healthy. So you, d- you this is a, a Christian ministry, obviously, but you don't have a religious test for participating, do you? No, it's really the opposite. Um, people that come to us for assistance, if they had any kind of a faith-based background, they've given up on it because they feel that it didn't work for them. Uh, so no, our doors are open to everyone. And you and and you do provide shelter for some people. We do, we do. Um, we provide everything from uh, emergency shelter to transitional shelter to permanent affordable housing for homeless men, women, and children. And uh, we have a big focus on veterans. <laughs> That's oh, that's interesting too. Um, the um, I, I was looking as I was preparing to talk to you, and I was shocked. I how many homeless people there are in the country, and it's more than five hundred thousand on any given night. That's the size of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Is that accurate? Yes. It is. It is. And like 165,000 of them are here in California. How, you said 165,000. That's the estimate for California. Yes. I grew up in the city of Alhambra, which is you know mm-hmm. twenty miles from you or so. And when I left that city when I was young, it was about seventy thousand. So you're basically saying two and a half times the city of Alhambra, or perhaps the size of Pasadena in California alone. That's just that's just stunning. Yes, and and you know especially when you look at Skid Row in Los Angeles, where I think the estimates are about sixty thousand homeless are concentrated just in that that one region. You said something earlier uh, that homelessness. Uh, these are not the words you use, but I think it's what you meant. That it's a pretty generic term. We're actually talking mm-hmm. about a lot of different populations when we talk about the quote homeless, aren't we? We really are. And, and when you look at the, the brokenness that leads someone to end up in their car on the streets without housing, most cases, it centers around addiction. It centers around uh, health, both mental health, physical health. Then, of course, you've got employment and housing opportunities, things like that, that are a little further downstream. But but upstream are the, the significant broken areas in people. And unfortunately, our elected officials and others look at just the housing piece. Let's just put them in an apartment. 
and this has been experimented throughout the 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 country and it's it's fascinating because like in utah and salt lake city they did this they rounded up the homeless they found apartments they put them in there and then all of a sudden they noticed the number of people dying from overdoses had increased dramatically and that's because when the homeless were on the street and they overdosed someone actually saw them and called the paramedics they were in an apartment nobody saw oh, that's them. very interesting and and so i keep going back to the fact that unfortunately we look at this as a housing issue which housing is a part of it but the but the real piece of it is the, the addiction side of it so if we're not treating the addiction side of this you know we're really going nowhere we're just sort of spinning our wheels for the most you part. you know there's an issue of love here uh, both the ability to love people who may seem pretty unlovable and the ability of those people to love themselves. Um, I know that if I ended up for some reason really, you know, had a horrible crisis and I ended up unable to afford my rent or my mortgage, there are people in my life who I know would take me in and, and, and help me get back on my feet until I was able to do that. But it seems to me that and of course I would do that for people I know too, people who are, who are in my family or people who, who are, you know, close friends and so forth. But a lot of people don't have that, do they? A lot of people really are on their own in this country. Well, they, they can be because they're, they're transplanted, but many of the cases we see are because they burnt all those bridges. I mean, addiction is a horrible thing. You look at the opiate addiction that we have in our country and, and what does that go back, what, seven or eight years? They now say that more people have died from opiate overdose than the number of Americans that died in World War One and World War II. Good grief. And and so it is a huge issue. So when we see people come to us, they have burnt most of those bridges. It will in most most cases all of the bridges of both family and friends. Um, and so they don't have a safety net that uh, you or I might because we're we're not dealing with an addiction. So I think that's one thing that we need to recognize is it sort of goes back to the addiction. Again. And and part of it is also mental illness, is it not? It is. And it's uh, what came first, the chicken or the egg. This is the one thing that all the professionals, you know, we sit around and talk about. Um, in many cases, people have mental health issues in which they use drugs uh, illegally to self-medicate themselves because they feel they can do a better job than maybe whatever doctor they had at one time. And, and, and when um, people are mentally ill, a lot of times, uh, you know, they're they're prescribed antipsychotics and things of that sort. And a lot of times they don't want to take those because in one sense it, it uh, deadens feelings. And so isn't there a problem with people refusing to take their medication and then they end up um, with their mental illness acting out and so forth? Yeah, there really is, especially like in bipolarism, um, when you're taking medication so you're not in this manic phase to stabilize you, that does uh, make people feel dull is the way they explain it, or tired or lethargic, or they gain weight. So a lot of people in that situation don't like to take it. The other thing that I found that's interesting is a lot of very creative people in this world are bipolar. 
And during that sort of manic or extreme high energy phases where they're the, the most creative. So a lot of the people I personally know that are bipolar are very creative people. And the medication does bother them because it sort of takes away that energy and creativeness is what they feel. And uh, so that can be a challenge because then they'll self-medicate with things they really shouldn't be medicating. And that can lead to addiction. And plus there's a problem with schizophrenia and so forth too, isn't it? There, there is. And, and one of the biggest challenges we have as a society is there's not many places to get assistance with mental health issues unless you have a significant amount of money yourself. Because when you start looking at healthcare in general, when it deals with addiction, you run into a problem of there's sort of a silo for mental health and there's a silo for addiction. And the two silos don't really connect. So you've got, you know, this psychiatrist that's helping you over here dealing with uh, your mental health challenges. And then over on another side, you've got a medical doctor, a psychiatrist that's trying to look at how to deal with your addiction. And, and the, the two, two are not talking? Cases, or if they talk, it's still very disconnected. It, and it would seem to me that those enough- would be connected. <laughs> You, you would hope, but you know, in our healthcare system, that's not necessarily the case. And we shut down a lot of mental health hospitals. I remember uh, when, when we <laughs> did that and the ACLU had brought lawsuits and said, you know, people can't be kept involuntarily in these mental health hospitals. And there were, so these hospitals were closed and they were supposed to uh, be replaced by community health facilities that never developed. Is that where right. this thing really began? It is. And, and I was a, a kid back at that time, but especially in California, uh, the, the governor got so fed up with the mental health system that we had. And that was around the time that one flew over the cuckoo's nest right. came out. And that really brought to attention what was going on in some of these facilities. So the governor basically, as I understand it, uh, told the legislature, you have, you know, this much time to come up with a solution and I'm closing the mental health facilities, you know, in two years. And unfortunately they closed and you're right. Nobody replaced them. And there was supposed to be community facilities opened and funded and they never were. I think that governor, correct me if I'm wrong, was Ronald Reagan. It was, right. yes, yes. And so you kind of had a uh, interesting convergence of, let's call them the left, the ACLU, which people would say is on the political left, bringing lawsuits and agitating and a lot of pressure to close these hospitals, which were probably abusive, as well as conservatives thinking about the money and, and Reagan saying, I can't take these hospitals anymore. And yet, basically, people were just thrown onto the streets without the support that would have been required to to help them. And that that kind of thing has only worsened in the decades since. And it really comes down to a question, do you want to give government the authority to force someone to take medication? And, and what does that look like? Because really, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about is, is people that are not being compliant with their medication. And do you want to give an authority, you know, authority to government institution or someone to do that? And then, of course, you look at 
movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was based on true experiences of what that can look like when you finally push people into that situation. This is between a rock and a hard place, which is why this issue is so intractable. Disability is also a factor, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, for to a certain extent, if you can address the mental health side, the disability side, we do have pretty strong systems in place to assist people. Uh, we've got, you know, Section 8 housing programs that are literally almost permanent for people with disabilities. But it's it's those dealing with the addictions are the challenge. They, you know, we started talking earlier about why so many in California. There, there's one other aspect to it that's interesting is California has a lot of home-based recovery homes, and they're in nice places like Newport Beach or Laguna Beach, and they charge, you know, tremendous amounts of money, sometimes $1,000 a day. And insurance companies pay for it uh, through ACA, Obamacare. Uh, Unfortunately, there's sort of like this endless flow of money without any real conditions attached. So you have people from all over the country that, that send their young adults in many cases or older adults to recovery in California. They go into one of these homes and then if they use, they get kicked out. And so they become sort of homeless in California now. That sounds like the name of a movie. (laughs) Because the, the family certainly doesn't want them to come back to wherever they are living until they address the addiction issues. So when you take that and then you take Prop 47, where you can steal, you've created almost the perfect environment to grow homes And to grow drug addiction. Oh, absolutely. Because as you said yeah. earlier, this allows, the, the lack of law enforcement allows people to fund their 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 addiction uh, and, and they don't have to worry about not being able to obtain their drugs. What about the issue of abuse? Uh, people who, uh, children who've been abused and perhaps run away or uh, spouses who've been abused. How, how big an issue is that? It's a good question. You know, that sort of flows a little bit into the mental health side of things. For us, we just call it brokenness because those we're working with uh, have different types of brokenness. It could come from uh, something that happened in early childhood, or it could come from uh, a broken uh, marriage that has significant abuse attached to it. And we have to put together treatment plans that are unique to someone's needs. But I do think uh, both of those things play a, a big role in that. And that might have led them to experimenting with drugs and becoming addicted. You know, in in researching this, uh, for this interview, I came across a lot of websites and a lot of advocacy where basically these organizations, particularly home people who self-identify or organizations self-identify as homeless advocates, they basically avoid dealing with the issues that you just discussed and, yeah. and basically lay it all out as, well, this is just uh, the cost of housing. And if we just provided people with, uh, with uh, economical housing, the, the issue would go away. And you're telling me, no, that's not true. Yeah, that is so frustrating that people continue to do that. It's the easy way out, in a sense, to say, well, let's just create enough housing. I think our country has gone through that when they used to create the project housing. Right. And 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 now they've basically eliminated that across the country and gotten out of that business because they found out there was no way of developing healthy communities that way. 
And then when you take the information, um, there's a, a professor over at Stanford that's been watching this closely, but, but you take a, a look at the opiate addiction, you take a look at the statistics of how the usage has increased so high in the death rate, you know, it was like 33% growth in a year. That is the population that we're talking about. So um, I'm really not sure why people just default to, well, let's just give them a place to live and then that's going to solve their homelessness. Because what you're saying is homelessness is really a question of existential uh, issues that people have in their own lives, not uh, just an economic circumstance where they can't afford to write the rent check. Absolutely. How many people do you think want to stay on the streets? I, I've heard reports of, you know, basically uh, people who are approached who are, uh, you know, living in the tents and that's what they want. Is, is that a significant factor too? It can be, you know, with the mental health issues, uh, let's start with mental health. Can they really make a decision? Do they really understand what the options could be? Many of the homeless feel that if they go to a shelter, they'll get attacked or their belongings will be taken. Is that uh, true? This is a reality. Is that true? It can be yeah. because if they go to a traditional sort of warehousing kind of shelter, yeah, they're so close to other people that they might have stuff taken or might feel they're unsafe. They might feel a lot safer in a tent in a group of people they know in other tents, you know, it's like their own community. Sort of like a guild. It is. It is. Yeah. It's it's relationship. Um, they feel safer with that. Now, let's look at those that have addictions, this, this huge percentage. Now, their brain is telling them thousands of times a day, I want to get high, or they explain it, they want to get back normal. And that's that's causing their entire focus to be centered around where do I get my next drink or where do I get my drugs? And can, so, I, can I interrupt you for a second? When you say, as sure. they say, get back normal, for normal, yeah. that means inebriated or, or high? Is that what you're saying? You know, it's a great question because this term keeps coming up with this population. And I think normal for them is feeling good. And it's not necessarily being on the manic end of something or the depressive, but being somewhere in the middle where they feel good and normal. And for every human being, that obviously could be different, but they're chasing that in a sense. And so on the addiction, you know, there's no clarity to should I make a decision to go into a program or do I just get high again today? That's sort of the challenge for them. So you find very few people wanting to come out of that tent and go into a program to become sober. What we do find is when they hit rock bottom, they can be in that place. And what I mean by that is, let's say we're working with a homeless fellow on the street and someone steals their tent and all their stuff. That might be rock bottom. And at that day, Bob might decide, you know what, I'm going to come over to the Orange County Rescue Mission and come into the program because I've lost everything. Wow. I, I mean, it's hard to believe somebody actually having nothing. It, it is really yeah. depressing to even ponder that, especially in a country. And, and they don't necessarily see it. Yeah. In a country like this, I mean, I, I've been to developing countries and I've seen destitution. Um, and you understand it to, to a certain degree because the cultures have not developed the kind of uh, rule of law and prosperity that permits mm -hmm. uh, for 
for people to actually get away from that. But to see the same kind of almost squatter mentality here in the United States, it's really quite shocking. But when you look at it through the filter of addiction, it sort of makes more sense because when that person becomes sober, the stories they tell about the fact, you know, we we were just talking to a fellow and he goes, I haven't had shoes for like two years Good grief! and I've just been walking around the streets. And now that I'm sober, I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? I, I can't even remember half the things I did. You know, not having been addicted, uh, thanks be to God, I find it hard to visualize that kind of dysfunction. I, I, I think is that part of the problem in terms of sufficient empathy in our society that we that so many of us are not in this circumstance, thanks God, but that we find it hard to relate to being so high or so caught up in this this uh, enslavement, if you will, that we would actually find ourselves in that circumstance. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, when I became the president of the rescue mission, I was like 27 years old. And immediately I was criticized for the fact that I had not come in the door as someone that was addicted or using because I, I just didn't have a background, you know, thanks to God, <laughs> that I had used drugs or alcohol that way. But I realized quickly to surround myself with people that had recovered because there is a great advantage to having those that have gone through that to help with the recovery of others. So we, we have a good balance within our teams of people that have actually experienced uh, addiction in different ways and working with those that are currently addicted. I do want to get into the services you provide and how you help people. And I, I just want to finish getting, uh, helping the audience, uh, the listeners understand the scope of the problem we're dealing with. There's also a problem of children being on the streets, isn't there? There is, there is. Um, and that's really been a real tough one to describe to people because they can't figure it out. We had an interesting situation with the Village of Hope, our um, flagship campus that we built uh, the most comprehensive facility for homeless men, women, and children in the United States in one location on about seven acres. And what that did is it drove us to receive a tremendous amount of referrals from homeless women with children because most shelters were not set up to accommodate children. But we were uh, in part because you had mentioned my background, you know, I had fostered children and adopted and ended up in a situation I couldn't really adopt anymore. I didn't have any more space and realized there's got to be something else that could be done to reunify the children back with their biological mothers. And the court said, you know, sure, Jim, that's a great idea, but the mothers need to become sober and need to provide for their children. So we ended up creating an environment that fostered that so that the children could be reunited with their biological mothers and they could become self-sufficient. The mom could provide for them and no longer be homeless. And that had to have tremendously helped the self-esteem of the mom so that they could actually perform their responsibilities as a, as a parent. Yeah. And it actually is a great um, carrot in a sense, because when we take a mom, a homeless mom with one or more children and put her right up 
to next to a homeless man that's single, the odds are she's going to make it. The odds with the single man are still out. We don't know. It could be 50-50 because they could always walk away from it and they don't see it uh, victimizing anyone else. If the mom walks away, she realizes she's putting her children right back through homelessness all over. Or into foster uh, care and that kind of thing. Or something worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, in in unsafe conditions, or she's going to lose them and they're going to go into the foster adoption Are any of these homeless kids... uh, Becoming victims of traffickers, that's another issue that I've been dealing with and thinking about. Um, Is this a source of uh, traffic children, this homeless issue? You know, it could be. And and especially in Los Angeles, Hollywood area where kids run away, there's particular nonprofits and ministries that focus on those that are, let's say, 15, 16, 17 years old. Um, We too have programs, but we tend to catch them before the kids are in a traffic situation. Um, So our, our focus is to try to, to, help stabilize the child and reunify them back with the parents. So we, we, we've um, seen the, the kind of uh, rock in a hard place circumstance that leads people to be homeless. We've seen that uh, many of the society's uh, policies promote homelessness, particularly in California with regard to proposition 47 as the number correct. Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen that uh, mental illness is an issue uh, and uh and that there's a real recidivism issue. My question is, and, and and we owe people because they're human beings help. It seems to me. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. But, but isn't isn't there also an issue that I don't ever hear talked about? That the homeless, the people who are in this need, don't they have responsibilities to the greater society as well? Absolutely. And and this is really where I think we stand out. When you're running a program that's providing a hand up and not a hand out, there are responsibilities that these individuals take on. The first is their own treatment plan in helping to address what needs to be addressed in their life and then working with a coach on a weekly basis or a case manager to move forward in that area. The other is keeping people busy, be it through um, certification programs, vocational programs, education programs, teaching them budgetary, you know, parenting classes, things like that, having them engage in those and be responsible to participate and complete those are all part of the, the program requirements that all we right, have. Let's get a little more specific because we've been talking in general terms. Um, what the uh, rescue mission, uh, how, how you would approach it. So if I, I was on the streets, let's say I've been addicted and I've, I've hit that bottom point and I knock on your door and I say, look, I'm really ready to get my life together. What happens when I do that and I say, I'm ready to try to get help? Well, so we'll take one step back. We've probably met you on the streets because we have outreach teams that go out. Those outreach teams work with local churches. We have chili vans. We have mobile medical clinic. We have a mobile legal clinic. So you probably had contact with us. And at some point you decide, like you said, I've hit rock bottom. 
I want to take it to the next step. Let, 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 me, next let, step. let me interrupt for a second. Now, these outreach sure. programs, legal, you said, medical. So, so you're actually going out into the community to reach people where they're living, even when they're not yet at a point where they're going to try to improve themselves. Yes, that's correct. And part of that is because we have 34 different cities in our county. And so homelessness is not located in just one area. It's it's all throughout the community. So having these mobile outreach facilities is really critical to being able to, to get out there and, and touch the homeless and develop engagement opportunities. And do you find that when you're actually out there helping them that that begins a process perhaps of improving their self-esteem because they think, well, if somebody is willing to help me here, maybe I've got some value or is it the other way around? Well, someone's going to take care of me and I don't have to take care of myself or is it both? Well, it could be both. It sort of depends on where that person's at. We have seen situations where um, they, they nickname them the church ladies yeah. <laughs> and the church ladies or sandwich ladies would be taking food out to a homeless encampment. They would be taking the, the homeless people's laundry home and doing it for them. And it was all sweet, and nice. But as soon as we move the first homeless family out of that encampment into an apartment, they, they came back the next day. They said, Hey, nobody brings us food or pizza. You know, we have to like get quarters now to use the laundry machine. There's all these things we now have to do that we didn't have to do when we were in the encampment. So, so that so could actually cause more harm than good, even though it's very well intentioned. Oh, absolutely. It, it makes some, you know, the, the little prince you, you've, have you read the book? I assume. And uh, the, the story, it's been a long time since I've read it, but the story that got me the most was when the prince has tamed a fox. And uh, then he's going to leave and he says to the fox, well, you used to take care of yourself, so go take care of yourself again. And the fox says, I can't do it anymore. I'm, no, I'm a tamed fox. I can't provide for myself anymore. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about here? They get into a, a a mode. It's sort of like super entitlement in a sense. Yeah, um, I've, I've seen that in other circumstances. All right, so let's because you know uh, I don't want to keep people too long listening. I could talk for hours with you because I just think this is this really an important, crucial issue of human dignity. But let's say okay, Wesley has decided I'm I'm I've. You know, I, I know of these people and I'm, I've hit bottom and I'm done. I want to get back into some self-respect and be able to care for myself. I knock on your door. What happens next? The first thing we do is you meet with one of our students. Now, we call our homeless students, not clients or guests or anything like that. So one of the students would meet with you and they would find out what's going on in your life. Um, how we might be able to help you. And because they're currently in the program, they can provide you with a lot of personal information on how this might be a good fit for you. So really at this point, we're looking for you to make a decision that you really want to come into a program like this. All right, this. so I, I, we, I decide I'm not going to take the drugs anymore uh, I, <laughs> and I need help getting off of addiction. Is that? And then the students say, okay, this is the program that I went through yes. and now you can go through it too, that kind of thing? Yes. Yes. And so we do a, a screening process with you to identify what some of those needs are. You might have legal issues that need to be addressed. You know, certainly you've got the addiction. So we would be doing 
um, a test to find out what kind of drugs are in your system. And hopefully what you shared with us is what comes up in the test, uh, depending on the type of addiction. Like for instance, if you've been an alcoholic for 30 years, we would send you to the hospital first for a medicated uh, detox because you just stopping could kill you. And there's certain drugs like that that we have to address that. But for the most part, it's cold turkey. So yeah, you would come into the program and you would have someone that would orientate you and show you the campus and where you're going to be sleeping, where the food is, you know, what the first activities would be for you. And uh, you would start as a freshman. And you would spend the next 90 days approximately as a freshman. Um, and then there's different uh, processes at that point or objectives that you accomplish to become a sophomore, a junior, a senior, and then you graduate self-sufficient. So I have to work to improve myself. It's not just a matter of you handing me what I need at the moment because the idea is so that I won't need you anymore, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and this um, progresses incrementally as I may, as I improve, then I can do more. And as I improve, I can do even more that kind of thing. Yeah. And then at a peer level, you start to help others and those relationships and your confidence in yourself continues to grow. This is a, a very intensive and hands-on kind of program. How many people are you able to help? Well, we're able to touch over 20,000 people a year because of the outreach and the significant amount of healthcare outreach that we do. Um, there's, at any given time, we have about five to 600 people living within our facilities, our, our beds that we operate. And so those would be the, those that are in our full-time program. And I assume there must be a waiting list to get in because you've got a limited facility, even though that's pretty big, considering the scope of the problem. Um, you know, if you've got thousands and thousands of people out there and you've you can have 600 who are willing to help themselves. There has to be a, a, a factor of waiting or am I wrong? Uh, not too much. I mean, especially with COVID happening, there hasn't been a waiting list. But uh, prior to COVID, there were times where maybe we didn't have any more room for women and children because those rooms were all taken up. Um, but typically, because we have multiple facilities, there's always a place for someone that's gotten to the point that they want to change their life. And and that's the, the key, isn't it? It's not just that someone needs help. It's that they want to change their lives. If they don't want to change their lives, your, your program won't do them any good. It really won't. And, and our program is more like a, a boot camp. It's, it's all inclusive. It's 24 seven, you know, when you get involved and uh, we're sort of known for being that group to help, you know, individuals and families get across this, the self-sufficient uh and what, what happens if, if somebody falls and, and uh, fails or there's a recidivism issue? Are they thrown out of the program? Do you give them uh, extra help to, to not do that again? Uh, how does that work? So there's two things. We have zero tolerance, violence and the use of drugs. So if someone was to uh, go out and get high and we found out, they would have to leave the program for 90 days 
and then they could request to come back in. If they're involved in violence, they typically don't have the option to come back. When people are seeking that kind of assistance, are they less likely to to um, engage drugs again and engage violence as opposed to somebody perhaps being forced to in order not to go to jail or something like that? Yes. So it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, So we practice sobriety, all our facilities. It's very important. And the students that are already living in the facilities, they will, through peer pressure, um, identify someone that they think is at risk of going out and trying to bring drugs back into the campus because they've worked really hard to stay sober. So the last thing they want to do is someone to come in and tempt them. So in most cases, the students that are at our campuses are the best ones to help with peer pressure and keeping, you know, newer people sober. So how many other organizations like yours are there that take this kind of hands-on approach, uh, which is a a loving but a tough loving approach versus, uh, as you said before, the governmental kind of programs, which seem to be mainly warehousing or giving people checks that they then buy drugs with? I'd say less than 10%. Uh, Typically, they would be faith-based organizations uh, because those that are taking government funds have all been forced by Congress really to go in a different direction and to not spend money on programs, but instead uh, just spend money on rent and putting people in apartments. So once again, we find that what works is not what the government necessarily wants to uh, promote and fund. Is part of that a First Amendment issue because you are faith-based or is it basically a different philosophy, the bureaucrats who want to basically do the checkmark thing versus the hands-on approach of uh, missions like yours? At this point in time, I'd say it's the latter. It's it's elected officials and others in Congress that are just like, can we just check the box to reduce homelessness? Even if it's not necessarily reducing it long term, they want to be able to show that they've reduced it even temporarily. Um, and by doing so, obviously haven't addressed uh, the addiction or mental health issue. So does the Orange County Mission, is it able to receive government funds? We potentially could, but we don't take any government because of that very issue, because of that very issue and all of the red tape it creates. Like, for instance, um, the veterans come to us. Some have been discharged in good standing. Some have not. So the VA refers all of those that are um, discharged without good standing because we can help them where their programs, there's many that they can't provide because the person started their addiction while they were in the military and then kicked out. So we have a lot more flexibility to help people just the way they need the help versus, you know, following government guidelines. What I'm getting from this, and this is not my area of expertise, so I'm just trying to absorb what you're telling me, but what I'm getting from this is that one of the reasons that The homeless issue is so intractable is because of government stupidity and and government policy. And secondly, the the best way out of our situation would be through a a philanthropic, um, nonprofit kind of approach, uh, and perhaps even faith-based, but as you said, it's not a religious test or anything, that, that helps people take responsibility for themselves, which runs contrary to what the dependency 
approach that uh, it seems to me that some activists want and some government bureaucracies want. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember one day talking to Secretary Carson about this, and he said, you know, Jim, it keeps coming back to the fact that government cannot require participation in programs, meaning I can provide them with a house, an apartment. I can even provide them with some you know, resources for food, but I can't require them to go into a detox program or a 12-step program to stay off of drugs. That's really hard to contemplate because the solution is part of the problem, and the problem uh, is <laughs> begging for a solution that is there, but the government doesn't want to participate in it. What other factors that I haven't addressed should our listeners understand about this issue? Again, this is a matter of human dignity and our obligations to each other. And that goes, as we both discussed, that's a two, that needs to be more of a two-way street than it is. But perhaps what haven't I brought forth out of my ignorance that you think people should be aware of? Well, I think in general, we need to go back and look at initially, these were uh, services like this were, were coming from churches. People would go to the local church when they were destitute to find resource. It could be food, clothing, shelter, whatever it might be. But the church would then be able to help coordinate that assistance to that person. It was only when big government decided to eliminate all poverty and have a war on poverty that, of course, they never won. But it just created entitlement programs and ongoing funding. And at that time, churches and others just sort of backed away because supposedly the government was going to handle and solve all of these problems. So I think at the end of the day, this comes right back to our local community. And it, it, it has a, a local answer that needs to be met in how you can assist people, you know, through face-to-face -face relationships locally and not necessarily through federal policy. I remember uh, when I lived in San Francisco when I was a younger man and uh, it was during the AIDS crisis and there was a, um, uh, a wonderful volunteer effort called Project Open Hand that would go and make sure that anybody diagnosed with AIDS at least had one meal a day, free dinner. And they were, I, I was a volunteer and I would go into the worst, I was at that time a younger and strapping fellow, you know, much more upper muscle weight than I do today. Uh, and they would often put me in some of the worst places in the city of San Francisco. And, and that's a story for another day, but I saw conditions I never dreamed were possible. But the reason it worked was because they were free to be efficient and to and to mm -hmm. uh, to move with what that local community needed. I remember one day I was uh, picking up the the food I was going to deliver, and I saw a famous senator there. I won't name him, and I, my heart sank because I thought, "Oh, if you get involved, this whole success will go up up in smoke." And and that sounds like what you're telling me is, is is part of the problem is that once the bureaucracy gets in and things get set in stone, it takes away the ability of the local uh, aid societies and the local missions to be able to move uh, with flexibility to 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 deal with the conditions that they're finding in their local areas. It really does, and. Unfortunately, you end up with government feeling that they know best 
and that it would be better that they just handle everything. And we know that that's, that's not the case and that's not what the future should look like. So this is also going to become at some point an issue of a political question as to whether or not, uh, the society wants to continue with the bureaucratic approach or have more of a, um, making an analogy to school choice, it's different, but mm-hmm. more of a, uh, a the ability for perhaps vouchers to be paid so that organizations such as yours can continue to provide that kind of flexible approach or the, the rules-based approach that you think works that perhaps the bureaucracies don't want you to engage. So if people want to have more information about the approach you're taking, what should they do? Where should they go looking? Well, they could start with our website, uh, which is rescuemission.org. Rescuemission.org. Yes, we're we're part of an association uh, with about 400 different types of rescue missions called uh, CityGate, and it's located in Colorado Springs. And for those that are outside of the Southern California area, you could go to CityGate org and put in your city and it will identify who your local rescue mission is. So that city, C-I-T-Y gate, G-A-T-E dot org, all one word, city gate. That's very good to know because I think there's a lot, hopefully there are a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who might want to help participate in helping their fellow human beings, their brothers and sisters get on their feet and help themselves get themselves on their feet. And, and I assume you can always use good volunteers. We can always use good volunteers, yep. <laughs> as well as financial support. Well, Jim, thank you very much. Is there anything uh, coming up in, in your life or the rescue mission's existence that uh, we should know about before we say goodbye? There's just, as, as we've talked about, just so much need that we're constantly, you know, taking a look at what we can do best at the same time, working with our volunteers and donors to help them connect the dots where they have uh, passion and love for their fellow human beings. That's wonderful. Is there anything that you're looking at in this current crisis that gives you hope? Oh, absolutely. Being that we have a dozen campuses, I get to see teenagers and their lives being transformed. As I walk into my office this morning, I see mothers with their children and the kids going off to school and seeing their lives transformed. There's a tremendous amount of hope out there um, that that is available. And I think that if we follow really... Um, what, what God is calling us to do in our lives and apply that passion, I think we can see tremendous success in the lives of the least, the last, and the lost. Oh, that's very that's very encouraging. And, and the story isn't just the tents. It's also the people who are getting out of the tents. Well, Jim Palmer, thank you very much for being unhumanized. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the good work you're doing. Well, thank you for your invitation. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Human Eyes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. 
Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.